Hello and welcome to Chris and Reefer's new bed. What's our podcast about, Reefer? It's about all the fun things that we've been doing all month. Culture, art, films, things that we've been thinking about, talking about in our house. You can have it in the bed if you want. We don't have to. We are going to chat about things that interest us. Things we like and things we hate. Reefer's still on her phone. Things that I like. And my notes are on my phone. Oh, I see, yeah. I think we should call the podcast This Must Be The Place. This Must Be The Place. Have you checked on the internet so that there isn't already a podcast called This Must doesn't Be matter, The Place? doesn't matter, but that's what I'm calling it. It is a really good name for a podcast. This Must Be The Place. 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 Yeah. Okay. This Must Be The Place, where the podcast happens. So the best thing that happened to me over the last week or so is that we got a new bed. And we've had the same bed for maybe 15 years or something just after we moved to Brighton. And it was a nice bed, but we never got a better one. Also, the thing I hated about our bed for years, it had quite a big wooden frame with pointy corners. And every couple of months or so, I would scrape my shin on one of the corners. And that never stopped for a decade. So I just constantly had scarred shins for a decade from our horrible fucking bed. And now... Reefa said, right, it's time, we're getting a new bed. And we went and got a new bed. And we even, like, lay on the beds in the shop to make sure we were getting the right mattress and everything. And then they delivered it, and they took the old bed away. Like, nothing went wrong. It's a posh bed, but it's not too posh. It's got a really nice headboard. I mean, we already had a nice headboard. We had, like, a dark, curved wood headboard before. But best of all, it's got this amazing, quite firm mattress. And it's incredibly comfortable. It's like being in a hotel, isn't it, Chris? It is a bit like being in a hotel. It's very important to have a bed. <laughs> it is very important to have a bed. <laughs> you were quite obsessed for a while uh, in getting the bed, or at least the mattress, from travel lodges because you really like their bed. Why was that? Because obviously I tried the bed. Oh, yeah, because you actually slept on it. That's how you know it's a good bed. Yeah. It's important to change your mattress, that's the problem. And we didn't change the mattress for a long time. But it's about quality of life. It's about making incremental changes in your life so that you actually have a better quality of life. And sometimes, like, we put up with crap, like scraping your leg every day for 10 years, (laughs) instead of making a change. Yeah, that's very true. So I feel like, just in the last year, I've just spent some money to have a better quality of life because it wasn't the noise or the street and making me feel like, oh, I've got to move house. It was just that I needed a better mattress and now I can sleep at night. It has made a massive difference, hasn't it? So I'm slightly happier. A lot happier. And now I actually want to be in my bedroom, which is nice. So the first topic we're going to talk about today is, Reefy, you went to see the Frida Kahlo exhibition at the V&A with your mum. And I can't find any of my notes about it, but basically I'll tell you my whole big story about Frida Kahlo. So I didn't know who Frida Kahlo was when I was a teenager and it was my friends who took me to a play about Frida and Diego Riviera in Bassey Arts Centre back in like whenever it was that I was 15. And they, (laughs) they were like really shocked that I didn't know who Frida Kahlo was and I have that quite a lot well I used to over the years I'd had that quite a lot with other people like what do you mean you don't know who Frida Kahlo is someone I knew was doing um Mexican artists at school for their GCSE and they weren't covering Frida Kahlo so 
she's an inspiration when people actually, young women especially, when they actually discover this really feisty little woman who is in the shadow of a famous artist husband, but she created these amazing pieces of work, mostly portraits, after having a horrific accident that she was in a lot of pain. And then she created these amazing pieces of work that weren't shown or recognised really until the 80s or the later even. So it wasn't until the middle of 2000 that the Tate did a major exhibition of her work. I think it was early 2000, 2007 actually. And then I'd never seen her work outside of books and went along to see, in fact I had a little postcard of her portraits, went to see her stuff blown away she was a communist she hung out with trotsky she had hung out with she did she hung out with him maybe she did some more things they both had affairs they just enjoyed their life and she died at 47 so for me she's an inspiration on so many different levels but she was pretty subversive so to go to an exhibition with my pretty conservative mum and see her actual costumes that she well they're not even costumes they're her her clothes at the V&A, which is one of the most conservative uh, institutions in the country, it brought back all those feelings I had when I first went to see her, see the film Frida, which Salma Hayek really fought to make. And since Me Too, we know there was loads of stuff that went on around that making of that film. But I find it really fascinating when you see moving images of the people that you admire that are long gone now, but the energy of them was in the room. There's a bit in the exhibition where you go through this kind of surreal corridor because her stuff was, you know, I use motifs of portraiture, but she had her own language. So the, the, the monkeys represent children, for example, in her paintings. You go through this weird corridor and you come out the other side and there's all these, like, <laughs> they look like effigies or mon- um, not monkeys, models of her dressed in these costumes and because they're not really her they're mannequins but it is kind of ghostly and a bit like a massive shrine that they've created for her in the V&A anyway I really enjoyed it they have footage of the native women and their costumes which she took on board as well as her part her personality they have her actual jewelry and her and her bits and bobs that they found way after she died in her bathroom because her house in Mexico is a shrine to her nothing's changed in there and you can go and visit it as well which I'd love to do one day anyway that was my fun day out with my mum where we ended up in the gift shop buying too many pictures of Frida Kahlo <laughs> she was so charismatic and had such a kind of fierce quality about her the fact that she was in constant pain and she lost her leg there's a bit in the exhibition where you see her embroidered bright red fake leg that she had made what did your mum think of it? Well, she loved it as well. I mean, she knew some of the story of Frida Kahlo. She knew that I always liked her. But this is the thing. There were lots of people who... My mum related to it because she said, you know, I used to wear these long skirts and these bright colours. And she related to her on a different, on a sort of fashion level, which is what the v is all about. It's about costume and about, about interacting with the textiles and understanding the context of costume, which is really interesting and fashion how it all peters down into fashion and how people are wearing Frida Kahlo t-shirts and you can go to the Tate and buy a, a salt and pepper what do you call that condiments made into Frida Kahlo 
and bloody Dali, which those two would never have been friends. Some of it I find really offensive. But for me, that's a gateway to people understanding a bit more about her, about her art, and maybe even communism. A Frida Kahlo salt shaker and a Salvador Dali pepper pot. Yes. They're not even from the same continent. They might speak Spanish, and they're not even from the same era at all, which is... Anyway, he was a fascist too, so obviously they wouldn't be... If she chose to be a salt shaker, she wouldn't choose to be with him. <laughs> Who would Frida Kahlo choose to have as a pepper pot if she was a salt shaker? Well, if they pick another artist, I don't know who that would be. Probably Diego himself, you know, that would be probably... Pretty much all week I've been binging on Anthony Bourdain's series Parts Unknown, which since he died they've put up on Netflix all eight seasons of it. So that's basically 64 episodes of Anthony Bourdain wandering around different places trying their food. I love how food. you say it's Bourdain. It's Bourdain. Okay, Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain. I don't really care. Anthony Bourdain. I would go with that, but he's American, so he wouldn't have said, my name's Anthony Bourdain, especially because of the kind of guy he was. He would have said Bourdain, wouldn't he? I don't know. I've never heard it said Bourdain. Uh, sorry, maybe he circles. I'm just making it up now. Basically, sorry. They're amazing. It's an amazing, inspiring series, but also I don't eat meat and I'm trying to be a vegan, and yet I find... Bourdain's stuff really compelling and inspiring and he gets away with eating and cooking and killing things on screen that I'm not sure anyone else would for me so it's a kind of a, a hypocrisy in my own viewing like if Jamie Oliver was on telly hanging out with bullfighters for example I mean even Bourdain was made uncomfortable by the bullfighting he didn't like it but he is happy to go around killing lots of things and cooking lots of meat and uh definitely stuff I find really uncomfortable and if anyone else like if Jamie Oliver was doing it I would absolutely hate it but there's something about Bourdain's total open-heartedness to all the cultures he visits and his sense of self and his kind of slightly self-mocking the way he he plays the alpha male but at the same time he plays it very self-mocking there's something about him that I just absolutely adore and Neither of us were particularly into Bourdain's stuff before he died because there isn't that much of it on free British telly and uh, he's not that easy to watch. There's a hell of a lot of tripe and pigs <laughs> and pigs' heads and stuff like that I'm not, I'm not into. The whole thing about the bull after they killed it and then they make all this stuff out of it, it's not interesting to me. What is interesting is all the stuff around like the immigrant stories, but I prefer... Ugly Delicious for that. That series is much more interesting for me. Perhaps because Ugly Delicious, the main guy that presents it, David Chang, is Korean-American. So it doesn't have the the white person at the heart. And obviously, although Anthony Bourdain seems himself to be quite open-minded and open-hearted, still the majority of the people you meet on the show and the majority of voices are male and, to a lesser extent, the majority of people are white guys. Even though he tries to get out of that bubble, you know, his famous friends tend to be white men so if he comes to London even if he has jerk chicken or whatever it was he had in London he's still hanging out with like Jay Rayner, Nigella Lawson and that absolute knob end what's his name um Marco Pierre White yeah Marco Pierre White so that's the one episode I really didn't like was the 
what they called it London, but it was Southern England. And he goes to have fish and chips. He didn't now, come to Brighton. Though. No, he didn't come to Brighton. He'd already had pretty decent fish and chips with Nigella. But Marco Pierre White, who just bangs on about himself the whole time, takes Bourdain to a pretty mediocre fish and chip shop and then tells him to pour extra vinegar on his chip butty, which is like a complete no-no. Like, okay, if you've got vinegar on your chips anyway when you make a chip butty with them, that's fine. But... Who pours more vinegar onto a chip butty? Because the whole point of a chip butty is the taste of butter and potato. You don't want fucking vinegar getting in the way. It's so annoying. And even worse, to give you an example of how mediocre this fish and chip shop is that Bourdain's eating at, he doesn't once say the food is nice. He's just putting on a polite face. And the chips are like, they're pre-made. They've, they are those crinkle-cut He should chips. have taken him for a cream tea or oysters if they were in Whitstable. That's what I think. They weren't in Whitstable. Oh, sorry. Well, they, they should have, have gone, gone to Whitstable. <laughs> had oysters. Yeah, there's so many things that they could have done. He would love... I mean, the, the possible problem with going to Whitstable for oysters is if you've had oysters all around the world... No, hang on. Whitstable ones probably aren't that good. Anthony Bourdain has had snails every single place he goes to. He has snails, that he has, like, tripe, that he has, like, pig's head, pig's brains... So I'm sure an oyster would have been much nicer for him. He loves tripe. He's managed to find tripe in so many different places. Yeah, I think you should need to explain what tripe is for our people who might not know. It's the lining of a stomach. They chop it up and braise it and put it in sauces. And I don't know, it's got a very strange texture. But yeah, a lot of places seem to like serving that. And in the old days, in, it used to be one of the cheapest cuts of meat obviously, like all offal, like all intestines and kidneys and blah, blah, blah. So it would be a cheap cut of meat. <laughs> That's like now on the poshest restaurant menus. But clearly when he's outside the Western bubble, when he's in some part of the developing world eating street food, they're serving him tripe and offal and tongue and kidney because it's cheap cut. I mean, that's part of what that is, isn't it? That it's still eating the whole of the animal rather than just eating posh cuts and maybe we've come full circle in hipstification where we eat tripe in an ironic way but surely he's not eating michelin starred tripe is he i think we've talked quite a lot about that now what so else i love this is i particularly love the jerusalem episode because bourdain has the air of the bull in the china shop about him like he strides around being quite loud and american and yet at the same time he manages to navigate the absolute minefield that is Jerusalem eating both Jewish cuisine and Palestinian cuisine like he goes to posh restaurants and talks with Jewish people goes to the illegal settlements even talks to people there and then ends up eating on a beach with Gazans and it's pretty incredible how well he navigates that and that's not a news program or whatever we get to see more of the real Gaza in that the excerpts of that show we get a more vivid well-rounded picture of what it might be like a little bit to live in Palestine than perhaps we've ever seen on mainstream telly so I thought that was really important and I really enjoyed the series and it's really sad that he is dead and it's really yeah the very last episode which is in Rome of season eight is when he meets Asio Argento and they don't make a big thing of it but it is really sweet and there is something there and it's got an atmosphere that episode that felt really positive so it's quite sad.
so the next section is what are we reading at the moment and uh, Rifa, what are you reading at the moment I'm reading about five different books at the moment but I will tell you about one that's really inspiring me it's called Radical Candor it's by Kim Scott came out in 2017 she is a serial startup entrepreneur she has worked with Facebook and Google and all the big players and basically she's written the handbook of how to be a really amazing manager especially for creative technical people so it's her system really I haven't even got through the first few chapters yet but she just says stuff that sounds so common sense it's about being clear in your communication it's about being honest with people but about really caring about them and she says at the beginning stuff around um, how complaints from people are I'm a manager I just spend a lot of my time talking to people about their day and how they feel and I just want to be getting on with my job and she has to remind them that managing people that is your job making sure people feel happy being caring about people is what gives you a good team and makes sure that they get the best do the best work of their lives you know and enjoy coming to work and I just read a little anecdote where she's talking to Cheryl Sandberg and Cheryl Sandberg um, has seen her do a presentation and she sort of takes her aside and says you know um, I think you're doing a really great job I'm paraphrasing obviously (laughs) I could read it I think you're doing a really great job I think you, you came across really well blah 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 but basically she wants to tell her that she has some ticks and that she wants to help her with her speaking, her public speaking. But Kim Scott at the time is a bit dismissive of her and uses this sort of thing with her hand to sort of like as if she's flicking a fly off and goes, oh, well, that doesn't really matter. And so Cheryl Sandberg like laughs at her and goes, well, I can see that you're not really hearing what I'm saying and is pretty blunt with her and just says in a nice way, she was totally, she was totally genuine in her praise and obviously you need to read the book to understand what I'm talking about properly but genuine in your praise and being authentic in your communication means that you can give feedback to people in a clear way so that they can take it on board and so she said look I need to tell you that when you say um a lot in your talk it makes you seem stupid when you're not it makes you sound stupid And I know that you're really clever and that you're actually saying something that's really valid in your talk. So here's some help. And this is what I'm going to give you a name of a really good speaking coach. And that just for me was just a really, and the whole book is full of all of this stuff. And it's got loads of tools as well. So managing teams is really fucking hard. People come and go in your company. So you need to have some sort of help with that. But also it's just good in your everyday life. Clear communication instead of sulking or thinking that somehow people can read your mind or not being happy or trying to keep everybody nice. All of those things are not helpful if you want to be successful in your life and in your business. It's called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Well, I was reading Raymond Chandler to try and avoid reading Proust because I promised myself I would read Proust this year. So then I was reading Raymond Chandler. I read The Big Sleep and The Long Good Night to try and put off reading Proust. And now I found another way to put off reading Proust, which means I'm hardly reading anything at all, which is I'm mainly playing Fortnite, the computer game that all the kids are playing. Explain what happens in the game. What's the premise of it? Fortnite is a battle royale game which means that a hundred players who are all real people from around the world parachute onto an island 
and run around collecting weapons and looting houses, but mainly try and kill each other. And the last person standing is the winner of the game. And also, the area that you can play in starts being the whole island, but over a period of about 20 minutes, this poison storm creates a gradually shrinking circle of area that you can play in that kind of creates a natural time span for the game. And I'm quite addicted to it. Now I'm only playing it on my phone, which makes it tougher to sort of get anywhere. And it's not quite the same game on your phone, but I'm really enjoying playing it. And I have won six or seven games in total. And I also did an interesting thing where I tried to win a game without killing anyone because of something somebody said on Facebook. And I did manage it. So I've also managed to win a game passive <laughs> pacifist winning a game of Fortnite br just by injuring people but not killing them and then hoping the storm would get them anyway i'm really enjoying it it's a brilliant game and uh, all sorts of different kind of thoughts come from it i actually really enjoy being in the space as well it's beautifully rendered it's quite simple but it's beautifully rendered and it gives you a lot of freedom you can just for example run around playing other things you know there are this sounds really stupid but there are golf carts and shopping trolleys and if you start off landing somewhere really high up and you find a shopping trolley you can literally roll down a hill on a shopping trolley which is really fun or you can drive a golf cart around kind of sub elements within the game that make it really stupid and daft and fun while also trying to shoot all these people this is how i do everything right i think about stuff a lot like I should learn how to swim again. And I, a few years ago, I went and had some uh, swimming lessons just to kind of get my confidence back about swimming. So there's people in Brighton that do all kinds of adult swimming lessons. And I found that basically I'd never been taught properly how to breathe. So I'm pretty strong. You know, I do yoga. I can float and I can swim around. But I always thought I wasn't a strong swimmer because I was never told to blow out when you put your face in the water so you breathe in and you breathe out which is different to yoga breathing so it's kind of makes my brain have to think a bit before I do it and learn how to do strokes properly and then after I had the lessons I didn't do any swimming I didn't go to swimming pools there's loads of little secret swimming pools all over Brighton didn't do any and we live by the sea as well didn't go into the sea, didn't do anything until we went to Thailand last year and basically went on a snorkeling expedition in some beautiful waters and literally just walked off the boat without having any knowledge of how to snorkel and no one had told me how to breathe with a snorkel thingy in your mouth, whatever that's called. So I really enjoyed it, I got to grips with it, I nearly drowned and had to be rescued but it was brilliant and once I got the hang of it even a few minutes with my breathing properly made me want to go and learn how to dive so a number of my friends and it seems to be a big thing in the tech community of people wanting to learn to dive and do their paddy courses and there are loads of water sports places in Brighton as well but I haven't actually ever been in the sea in Brighton and uh, the first time I went was a few weeks ago with Anna from Melting Vinyl four of us went into the sea in Rottingdean and it was just nice to go with three very supportive people. There was no competitive or taking the piss or anything. It was just really nice. And we just bobbed about a bit and it was really fun. And um, one of us was swimming properly with snorkel gear on. But it was super warm. And obviously, 
when that first week of lovely sunshine came, we didn't know how long it was going to last for. So it was a shock, actually, to know that the sea was going to be that warm of an evening in the middle of the south coast, in the middle of the English Channel. So I've been in a couple of all times, not as clean in Brighton, but it's so much fun. But the thing that I have to watch out for is I keep giving myself sunstroke by just not realising that when you're in the sea, you might feel nice and comfortable, but the sun is beating down on your head. The other thing that's happening is that I've just started to worry a bit more about bloody global warming and there's nothing we can do now. It's all going to go to tits. You can cut that bit out. <laughs> you can cut that bit out. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. Bye and we're done. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye.